Welcome to the report card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. You couldn't tell, I am not Nat Malkus. I'm Matt Rice, the producer of the podcast, filling in for Nat as the guest host of this episode. Nat will be joining us today from the other side of the interview table. One year ago this week, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine became the first to announce that all K-12 schools in his state would close in response to the coronavirus pandemic, a decision that was soon echoed by every governor in the country. Those initial closures back in March 2020 were supposed to last a few weeks. It's now been 12 months, and many districts have yet to reopen for in-person learning. Exactly how many districts? That straightforward question has proven exceptionally difficult to answer. For the past several months, AEI and the College Crisis Initiative at Davidson College have been developing a tool that monitors what type of instruction is being offered by almost every school district across the U.S. It's called the Return to Learn Tracker, or R2L for short. On this episode of The Report Card, we'll be talking with Nat about the development of R2L, what we can learn from its initial data, and what we should expect in the weeks and months ahead. But why stop at one tracker? Today's episode is a two-for-one. Joining us also is Chris Marsicano. He's an assistant professor at Davidson College and the founding director of the College Crisis Initiative, or C2I. In addition to partnering with AEI on the Return to Learn tracker, Chris oversees C2I's efforts to track higher education's COVID learning plans. We'll be talking about those as well today. Nat. Chris, welcome to the report card. Thanks so much, Matt. Happy to be here. And thanks to Nat for inviting me to join this excellent educational program. And I'm glad to be here, Matt. It's weird to be on this side of the mic. (laughs) All right, let's start with a basic question. What is the Return to Learn Tracker? The Return to Learn Tracker really is a data collection. We've been working on this uh, all year, and it's just sort of gone public uh, the past month. And what we set out to do was to track not all districts, but all the districts that we could as to what their instructional models were every week over this tumultuous school year. So really what we're focusing on is uh, a very broad and relatively simple data collection that can track changes in instructional models. We do this weekly. And the data is visible to the public on our Return to Learn Tracker dashboard. That's at returntolearntracker.net, which I'm sure we'll include in the show notes because this is my show, Matt. And uh, I can make sure we do. Um, and, And so we're tracking that. And you can see what the map looks like. You can check it out. Over time, we break it out by district characteristics like uh, size or, um, you know, political vote in uh, 2020. There's just too much to go over in in one brief answer. Sure. We said that you're tracking almost every district. So which districts aren't you tracking? Yeah. So we are tracking uh, public school districts and only regular public school districts. So I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have independent charters included in there. And then the, the really small districts just don't really work with the way we capture data in the Return to Learn tracker. So we only capture districts with three or more schools. That's about 8,500, it's more than 8,500 districts. Yeah, every week. Gulp. <laughs> so 8,500 districts. Uh, I imagine that you're not calling each of those districts every week. So that raises the question, how does the tracker work? 
Yeah, so I'm going to keep this simple and you can read more about it. But basically, we have a, a, a web scraping machine. And we look on every district's website every week. And we scrape the data off the website. And we compare the data in one week to the data we scraped the last week. And we only look at the stuff that's new. If, if it's new that week, it might be an announcement. And then we take that data and we put it through sort of a machine learning algorithm, which is just, uh, you know, fancy talk for some computer models that analyze the text that we captured and determine whether it's relevant to a change in school model. And once we have all those, those are sort of like flags for places for us to look. And then we have a, a bunch of human researchers that take it the last mile. And they go and look at the websites that our machine tells us, you need to look here because there might be a change here. And we actually determine whether there was a change when it happened. And we log that on our time series. And that's a lot of work, that last mile. And that's one of the reasons that Chris and his team at C2I are absolutely essential to this work. Chris, I, I want to talk about C2I's position in this and some of the data that you're collecting on higher education. But first, hearing that describe the mechanics of the return to learn tracker, I'm wondering how C2I's tracker compares in its basic approach to tracking responses to COVID. Yeah, sure. So our, our tracker is, is sort of uh, at, at its base level, pretty similar. I think return to learn is a little bit more uh, advanced in that it adds that natural language processing component that we just don't have. Um, effectively, we we use the the people power at the beginning and ending of our tracking of, of colleges and universities, not just at the end. We have students go out. I've got 56 students, Davidson College students, uh, who, who are brilliant and talented and incredibly hardworking, and go out and collect data on mode of instruction of 2,986 American colleges and universities. After that initial data collection of mode of instruction or COVID-19 testing protocol or vaccine protocol, what have you, we then input all of those institution websites into our own spider, our own tracker, uh, which then also flags for us changes from the previous day. Now, where we are different is what Return to Learn has done, sort of an innovation here, is by really adding that natural language processing component understanding sort of where the major differences might be, having better flags, not just has it changed, but has it changed in a way we expect? Has it changed in a way that we think needs to be reflected in an updated data? And so once we then send C2I students back to, to support the return to learn tracker, that's again, sort of like what the, the college crisis initiative tracker does as well. And Matt, you know, one of the big differences here isn't as much a difference between the trackers. I mean, it is. But it's a difference between colleges and schools, right? I mean, school districts are changing weekly in their statuses. Not not each school district, but there's always changes. Whereas colleges, you know, they set themselves up for a semester and they're not moving back and forth on sort of the fundamentals. Right. We we may see a college go on a on a two week pause after uh, a big party was uncovered, or I think my favorite example was after Notre Dame students rushed the field after Notre Dame beat Clemson. Uh, there, there's sort of a, a pause in, in in-person instruction shortly after that. Um, but we're not seeing the sort of multiple changes per institution 
that we do see among some of these districts. Matt, were you on that field? Because I know you're a huge Notre I, Dame fan. I, I was not. I was not. But as an alum, I appreciate the example. Um, <laughs> Nat, the, the R2L dashboard includes data on things like poverty and broadband access and district size. I imagine that you're not tracking those things. So where are those data coming from? Yeah, we have a, a whole bunch of external pieces of data that we bring in here. And it should be noted that we have a machine, but we also borrow from every data set that is available to us. Um, MCH uh, Strategic Data gave us a, a huge help with their work from before February, and we've incorporated that. And we gather data from about, I don't know, 27 states now. And states, as you bring data online, will use yours too. But on top of that, there's just a bunch of data that's already existed that give us ways to look at how districts might differ. So we don't track how districts voted, but there's a data set that we got from USA Atlas that gives us sort of county-level voting data so we can look at it by Trump and, and Biden vote. Those are big differences. We have it by a, a bunch of other variables from about seven different looks at poverty to minority test scores. We have, oh, we have mask usage from the summer. We have uh, any number of things. And we're, we don't have all those up, but they're coming soon. So if you're interested in more details, stay tuned. Sounds good. One more piece of table setting that we should get out of the way here. What exactly do you mean by in-person, hybrid, and remote? What, what are the rough definitions? That is, a key, that is a key question to understanding this. And um, so I may belabor it a little bit, but when we talk about remote districts, we mean fully remote. All of their schools are remote. Um, when we talk about and and they could have uh, pre-K, K, and first grade students in and still be considered remote. If you're fully in person, all grades have an option for students that want to to go in person. It doesn't mean that everybody is forced to be in person. And everybody else is captured in this hybrid category. And it's important to understand that this is at a district level. So our data do not disaggregate districts whose elementary schools are in person and their high schools are remote. So when we think about the percentage of districts, that doesn't translate to the percentage of schools for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that in a bunch of districts, high schools are remote, so that remote percentage of schools would be higher. And uh, in a bunch of districts, their elementary schools are fully in person or at least have that option. So this is really the districts that are fully in one or the other. And then the other thing that you got to realize is we are counting by districts and our percentages are the percentage of districts. Well, there's 1,500 plus schools in New York and there's not in, I don't even know what the, the small districts are, but you know, a district that has three. So the, the school level percentages are, are quite different. Uh, we'll be reporting those by the percentages of schools covered, um, but it really makes a difference on size. Absolutely. So we've been talking a lot about how the Return to Learn Tracker works. Let's talk about the data. First off, how many districts are remote and hybrid and in-person? Sure. So to be very specific, Matt, we mean how many districts are fully remote. And as of March 1st, we have 14%. We have 36% that are fully in-person. They have an option for full in-person instruction. And that leaves exactly half that are in, in some hybrid format or, or part. That's been changing over time, sort of reached a, a height of remote instruction, not counting the very beginning of the year. But um, from November, remote instruction sort of 
increased around the holidays. And that's also when we had those huge increases in COVID cases. And then since January 4th, every week we've been moving sort of less fully remote districts. And those are are moving into either the hybrid or into the fully in-person. So March is our third month when we're steadily moving back towards some form of in-person instruction. I'd like to jump in and say a lot of this varies across varying different sort of characteristics of the district or of of the county in which the district is located. So for instance, those places with high levels of access to broadband internet have a larger percentage of their districts that are fully online. And those with low access to broadband internet uh, are are more likely to be in-person, fully in-person. The same goes for for presidential votes. Districts that voted majority Biden are more likely to be online and districts that voted majority Trump are way more likely to be in person. So, you know, your, your mileage may vary on, on this uh, depending on where you are in the country. Uh, and I think that's a, an important component to, to mention here is that not all districts have the same assets or the same culture. And so we shouldn't expect the same results in terms of their reopening plans Uh, because of those differences. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of differences at play here. And, you know, this is not what what Chris and I would call multivariate, right? This is just looking at at one cut at a time, and they they all overlap considerably. So, you know, when Chris points out that there's broadband differences, you know, that sort of makes sense, right? I mean, if you have more broadband Mm -hmm. access in your area, then you could be a little bit more relaxed if you're fully remote because you don't have a bunch of students or at least as many who can't access that remote instruction. So that that makes sense. And then when you you go to the next cut, like district size, well, small districts are much more likely to be in person. That sort of makes sense. And large districts are much less likely to be in person and much more likely to be remote. So you really have to kind of go through all these things to try and get an understanding. The the main thing that we're trying to put out on the tracker is a variety of ways to look at this and understand what's a pretty complex pattern. And then just to make it even more difficult, we show it to you over time. So there's plenty, <laughs> there's plenty to drink from this fire hose. Well, you have a, a lot of fascinating data. One question for you. Why did you build R2L? And I emphasize you. You know, why why not the US Department of Education or, you know, state departments of education? Yeah, so I mean, the answer I don't have an answer for the US Department of Education. I mean, there's some reasons you can offer. They don't have the statutory authority to to do this kind of steady data collection and so forth. But I think that it's sort of ridiculous that they haven't done more up till now. I don't know the degree to which politics played into that at the end of the Trump administration. They're they're, they're working on something of that nature now. But I would say that it's fairly well, that it's just fair to say that they're behind the eight ball on this. States are all over the map on this. Some states have the data up on their website for download every week. Others are willing to share it if you ask. Thank you, Missouri. Uh, and not just Missouri, but, uh, you know, they give me this this daily data file and it's just makes my job a lot easier. And, and we double check all those sources of data in the tracker. But uh, some states are much better than others. Now, why did I do this? I mean, Part of the reason was this goes all the way back to the work that I started last spring when I, I couldn't find nationally representative data on what was going on, you know, about a year ago. And I was like, what are all these districts going to do? And there's that adage, if you don't have the data you want, go get it. And, and so that's what we did. And this is sort of the next iteration of that. 
Part of the reason that I did this was because I wanted to know what was going to happen this year. And my original thought was, well, in the spring, everybody's going to come back in person and then there'll be a surge and we'll watch the closures happen. Uh, Of course, that surge didn't wait until late fall. So we went after this and it was harder than I thought it would be to cover 8,500 districts every week. And so it took a while for us to get it underway. But we went after it for two reasons. One, I wanted the public to know what was going on as soon as I could get the data to them. And two, really, like I said at the beginning, this is a data collection. And I'm hoping that it will be probably the best weekly data collection that covers a wide swath that can be used by researchers uh, in the future uh, to really understand what is, to say the least, a remarkable year in the history of public education. Yes. Chris, while Nat was collecting data on K-12 schools in the spring, I understand that you were working on the higher ed side of things. So talk to me about C2I, what led you to found it and what your team is working on now. You know, on March 12th of last year, so almost a year ago, uh, Davidson announced that it was going to be transitioning from predominantly in-person instruction to online instruction for the rest of the semester. And at the time I had three research assistants and two of them were seniors. And so we had this sort of moment of, of recognition that their time at Davidson was going to end. And like all good liberal arts college uh, students who, who care deeply about what it means to be human, care deeply about saving the world uh, and doing what they can to serve their fellow man, they decided that the way that we would cope with this disappointment was to start doing something about it. And we looked around and like Nat and AEI, noticing that nobody had really great public data on K-12 districts, we realized pretty quickly that no colleges or universities were you know, in a central repository of data in terms of what their, their mode was. So we set out to start collecting these data with a very generous gift from the ECMC Foundation. We were able to expand our team and bring in a group of data scientists and computer scientists at Davidson called Project Pronto and build some of the tools that we now use to track 2,986 colleges and universities and their modes of instruction. Uh, We're also tracking testing plans. We're tracking when and whether institutions are having spring breaks. We're we're beginning to track vaccines. And in the next couple of months, we'll begin to track fall 2021 uh, modes of instruction in in addition to the spring and fall that we currently have for for this year, academic year. And so it we have tried to be a, a resource. Every researcher who's asked for our data has had the opportunity to, to use it. And, and so we, we want to be a resource for people to do exactly what the goal of R2L is, is to, to be that central data repository for great research for years to come. And, and I have to say, I think the best part about all of this is students are the ones who are, are developing the research here. Students are the ones who are building the, the data collection protocols. They're the ones who are getting this incredible experience of working with the great folks at AEI Education for the Return to Learn Tracker and for others for some of the things that we're, we're currently doing as well. And so I cannot stress that without the, the talent, the, the drive, and, and the hard work of, of these Davidson College students, we would not be able to do what we do. 
Yeah, and let me echo that because every chance I, I get, I, I I want to thank and applaud the Davidson students. So can I just lay it out there, like what this looks like for the folks that are working on the Return to Learn Tracker? On Monday, we send them out a long spreadsheet with a bunch of sentences that have been processed through a you know natural language processing algorithm. And we say, hey, here is 8,000, 6,000, 4,000 lines from 1,700, 2,200, however many districts brought up flags that week. Would you guys go and visit all these websites and make sure all this data is right? And they sit down and get on the web and figure out the answers to the same questions over and over and over with tremendous attention to detail. And it's hard, hard work. And this wouldn't be possible without them. So it's it's just vital, I think, to recognize their work. Um, Andrew Gardner is, you know, taking point on it now, and he's doing a fantastic job. And Sam Awusu and the teams that they've led have made this work possible. And, you know, credit needs to go where it's due. And it's due to them. Well, you're, you're kind to say that now. We're just happy to be a part of this project. We know how much this will help people in the future. And that's what our our goal is, is to to be uh, public servants here. Uh, and, and so every single one of these students um, that I have the privilege of, of working with has just been thrilled to work with AEI Education on the Return to Learn Tracker. K-12 and higher ed are distinct domains in the education world, but this past year they faced many of the same challenges, namely giving students the best possible education during a global pandemic. Chris, having a foot in both domains with your C2I (laughs) dashboard and now R2L, do you see any lessons that K-12 could take from higher ed or vice versa in response to the pandemic? Sure. So I I have to be very clear and honest here. I was very, very skeptical that higher education institutions could open safely and have students on campus and be able to to keep their students healthy and safe. I was wrong about that. The data just show that there are some institutions that if they take the right approach in terms of testing, in terms of social distancing, in terms of building structures so that students can be safe, they can keep everyone healthy and happy. That is is something that I hope K-12 learns. We've got a lot of districts that are still online. The science does not bear out that they should be completely online. The the health risks are, are are becoming less and less, especially as more and more people get vaccinated. And in many states, teachers, and in some states, faculty and staff are special categories of people to receive the vaccine. So we're, we're getting closer and closer to a situation where people need not fear. You can open safely and you can open in person. A lot of higher education institutions have shown us the way on, in that regard. Now, others have not. We've learned as much about what not to do as we've learned what to do. As long as institutions can build a, a community of, of trust and a community of compliance with protocols, as long as they can test students and faculty and staff regularly using high quality testing, PCR testing, as long as they can limit mobility. This is the big thing, limiting mobility, not letting people move all the way around uh, the country for spring breaks and things like that. Then they can keep case counts down because we really need maybe six to eight months left and then most people will be vaccinated. Nat, same question to you. Do you see any overlap between K-12 
and higher ed in their responses to COVID or, or lessons that one could take from the other? Well, I, I do. I think that we can learn more from colleges than school districts in some respects because they seem to have been better sources of uh, data, a little bit more self-reflective. And so they do offer some lessons. And I completely concur with Chris. I was pretty skeptical about reopenings when we were sitting at July 15 and the numbers were just going up and up and up and up. And I thought, man, this is just crazy. I didn't know which end was up, but it, it certainly made me nervous. And I, I think that uh, on on both of these uh, levels, the, the, the post-sec and the, the K-12, um, we've just learned an enormous amount since then. I mean, part of what we've learned is that there's actually a bunch of districts that were open in November and December. And if there was the huge fallout that we would have expected, I'm telling you, there are journalists out there that would have figured it out and reported on it. We just didn't see the fallout that everyone had expected. So I think there's just a lot of reasons to trust now that we know what to do. And quite frankly, I've read a lot of district websites over the past year, and there are some districts that I think are still not taking the precautions that that they should. I think that there's some sort of easy things to do to do school in person safely. And some districts aren't doing that. And I uh, I still think that they should. But even then, we haven't seen the fallout that I would expect. So I do think that this is doable. I think it's achievable. And I think we need to share those stories. I mean, if you just read in the papers, a lot of what you're going to hear is, oh, schools are closed. All schools are closed. Well, you know, not all schools are closed. In fact, a lot of them are open and and have been. And I think we need to trumpet those positive messages so that people can sort of change their mind about what is possible. Because in too many places, their sense of what is safe and what is achievable is still rooted in April of last year when we really didn't know all the things that we know now. And just to, to add on to that, I hear a lot from teachers, their concern about getting sick, their concern about contracting COVID-19. But like Nat said, we have a lot more information in March of 2021 than we did in March of, of 2020. And one of the pieces of information that we have from various CDC reports is that teachers are more likely to contract COVID-19 from each other than they are from their, their students that they're teaching. And so it's really, really important that any sort of plan to reopen takes into account some of these realities and, and is not based in fear, but in, some, in the research and the knowledge that we now have. There's one other difference that I want to talk about between higher ed and K-12. In higher ed, you have a couple of problems that you just don't have for K-12. One, which Chris has done important work on, is just like moving back to campus. That's a that's a big stirring of the pot, increasing contact between people that otherwise wouldn't probably contact, and there's that. And then there's the other thing is that you just don't really control students out of school, right? I mean, they have a lot more independence. And both of those aspects can can really be problems for COVID transmission. And those aren't things that we have in the same way in K-12. And in fact, some of those things can be sort of advantages in K-12. When you have students at home, especially under pandemic fatigue, you can have those students going to places and interacting with more groups in an unregulated environment when instead you have schools open and even open part of the time so that there are some social outlets and there's an increased responsibility to sort of follow those rules. Then you actually have 
regulated environments where you're saying, you know, kids, stay where you can social distance. Let's keep that mask usage up. Let's do what we can with some rules in place. There's a, a logic there, and there's some evidence that those places may actually be safer than fully remote schools where we just kind of don't have those means of corralling behavior. And I think that that's less important as these COVID cases keep dropping, and there's no wood to knock on here, but I would if there were. Nonetheless, being back in person, even five days a week, can be done safely and may actually be safer than not doing it. As you said, COVID cases are dropping, and it seems like we're trending in the right direction, but certainly there's still a long road ahead of us. So I'm curious, what's next for R2L as we walk down that long road? What are what are the plans? Matt, I feel like the guy in the old Dunkin' Donuts commercial who got up and said it's time to make the donuts every morning because we took up the burden to update this thing weekly, and so every week we are going to watch this change. So I have my work cut out for me for the rest of the year. I, I will say that as far as what we might see on this front, yeah, we, we do see districts. They've been steadily returning to more in-person, and, and a lot of those that were remote are moving to hybrid, and some of those that were hybrid are moving back to five days a week. I expect that to continue, but I do think that we shouldn't say, oh, well, only 14% of districts are remote for a couple of reasons. Number one, that 14% of districts, those are the bigger districts, right? Uh, 24% of large districts are still fully remote. That means all their students are fully remote still, and they have a lot more schools in them. So it can be a little tricky to understand that 14% number. It can cover a lot more than 14% of kids. And so there's more work to be done there. And then there's also the slowing rate of the return that we've seen over February. January, a lot of folks were moving towards in-person instruction, and that has, has slowed down. And so I think we're sort of back at that place where it's very stubborn. These are the places that are just going to take a lot more work and a lot more convincing to say, you know, let's get these kids back in school. I don't want to come off as some ultimately strident advocates, you know, damn the torpedoes, send the kids back. I just am consuming the information and the research that we've had and I'm convinced that this can be done and therefore it should be done. But I do think that there's a last mile here this school year that's pretty important both for students this school year and for setting up expectations for next school year. If we can do it now, we should, in order to make sure that we have as high a proportion of students back in person, in school buildings, as possible next August. Chris, what might we see on the higher education front? Will colleges be releasing extensive return-to-learn plans for fall 2021? We've begun to see colleges do that already. I don't put much stock in those plans. Uh, and, and the reason I don't put much stock in those plans is because this time last year, um, it, it, well, I guess a little bit later than this time last year, colleges were saying that they were going to be in person only to do an about face several months later. And, and in some cases to do an about face six or seven days into the semester, like the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill did, right? So, uh, you know, I think it's important that people who are watching colleges and universities and their plans for next year take anything said with a grain of salt. That said, I expect the majority of institutions that were previously in person prior to COVID-19 will continue to be 
in person post COVID-19. And, th and that's for the simple reason that for a lot of these institutions, their business models require it. They need students living in residence halls. They need the auxiliary revenue that comes with all the things that happen on a college campus in order to keep their doors open. That's not places like Harvard or places like the University of Maryland, which have other funding mechanisms, a massive endowment and uh, state uh, appropriations, respectively. But I think it's important to, to state that the vast majority of institutions we predict will be in person in fall 2021. Well, there's a lot of time between now and then, and a lot could happen. So we'll have to have you back on the report card to see if your predictions are true. I would love that. I would love that. I think the the one thing we're watching with eagle eyes here is whether or not institutions are going to require the COVID-19 vaccine uh, for students to return to campus or for students to enroll at all. Keep in mind, that's very normal. It's very normal for colleges and universities to require vaccines, you know, measles, mumps, and rubella, tuberculosis. This is a normal thing for colleges to do to require these vaccines. But I, I do wonder to what extent they'll be willing or able to require the COVID-19 vaccine before fall 2021. That's what we can talk about if I'm lucky enough to be invited back. We will have you back. Matt, this isn't your podcast. How can you make <laughs> such a call? I, I'm sitting in the host chair. <laughs> Nat, Chris, thank you for coming on the report card today. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Nat. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Nat Malkus and Chris Marsicano. For weekly updates on the status of America's return to in-person learning, subscribe to the R2L newsletter at returntolearntracker.net. If you're interested in higher education's response to the pandemic, check out Chris's C2I work at collegecrisis.org. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. Filling in for Nat Malkus, I'm Matt Rice. Thank you.